Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows. Full terms at mintmobile.com. Hello, I'm John Prado, and this is a new podcast from The Economist about the 2020 elections and the road to power in America. Welcome to Checks and Balance. I'm The Economist's US editor. Every week from now until Election Day in November, we'll take one theme that's shaping American politics and explore it in detail. Today, we're going to be talking about how President Trump has remade the world. We'll speak to economist correspondents across the states and beyond, and each week two of my American colleagues will be riding shotgun, Charlotte Howard and John Fasman. Morning. Hi. So Charlotte, just tell the listeners a little bit about yourself. You're the New York bureau chief. What's your plan for this election season? I'm going to be watching the interaction between politics and business and politics in America's economy, because this is a really interesting election in that there's a very dramatic difference between Trump's vision of America's economic future and the one proposed by Democrats. So I'm going to be looking at the real world implications of Trump's policies to date, including tax reform and deregulation, as well as some of the Democrats' proposals. Fasman, you're the Economist Washington correspondent, but I've had a sneaky peek at your travel schedule, and you're hardly ever in Washington, at least not in the next few months. No, in the next few months, I'll be on the campaign trail pretty much all the time. This past week, I've been in Washington, D.C., tracking the impeachment trial very closely. I have also, just on my way into the studio, completed one of my least favorite rituals in journalism, which is the purchase of a 6 a.m. airline ticket on a Sunday morning. And so I'll be in Iowa next week. And so those two together have got me thinking that the course of the world the next four years could depend on the opinions of about 20 people in the United States Senate and a few thousand people in a few crucial counties in the upper Midwest. Well, for their benefit and also for the benefit of the 98% of the world looking on at this election from the outside and waiting to see what America has in store for them, we're going to spend this whole episode talking about foreign policy and in particular, the way in which Donald Trump's use of American power has changed the world. This week's impeachment drama ought to come as a relief to Donald Trump's critics who've been waiting for three years for his wildcard presidency to implode. But he's highly likely to survive his Senate trial and the polls suggest he has a good chance of winning a second term. So the world order won't go back to normal, to the pre-Trump era, anytime soon, if it ever does. So it's worth trying to figure out what difference Donald Trump has really made. There's a lot to chew over in his foreign policy. North Korea, climate change, we're expecting his Middle East peace plan next week. But in this episode, I want to focus on China and Iran, because events there could be far more consequential for Donald Trump than the Ukraine story that sparked his impeachment. We'll get the view from the Gulf and from Beijing and try to put Donald Trump's record into some historical context. But first, let's talk about President Trump's MO, about how his foreign policy works and how it's different to previous presidents. 
John Fasman, let's start with you. How effective has Donald Trump been in his own terms? I think we have to ask what Trumpian terms are and what his foreign policy goals are. And I don't know that there really were any from the outset. I think that he rode a wave of people who thought that Obama was too supine and was apologizing for America. I don't happen to think that's true, but that was certainly a live narrative. And so I think he had a vague sense that he wanted to somehow make the U.S. more respected on the world stage. If that was his goal, then he is failing spectacularly at it. There was a Pew poll that came out earlier this year, and it asked people in 32 countries whether they had confidence in Donald Trump's ability to do the right thing for global affairs. Most of the countries, a majority of people did not. There were a few that did. His ratings were particularly high in India, Israel, and the Philippines, all of which have leaders that are, to a greater or lesser extent, somewhat Trumpy. If you ask yourself whether he has succeeded in his own terms in making America more respected, I think the answer is probably no. As a self-avowed nationalist, I guess he doesn't worry too much about what foreigners think about him. But he's trying to make those Americans who voted for him feel that their country is more respected and even perhaps feared abroad. Charlotte, you talk to a lot of diplomats in New York. What have you picked up from those people about how Donald Trump's foreign policy is perceived outside the U.S.? In recent weeks, I've had a series of conversations with people who ranked at the most senior levels of the military in prior administrations, as well as several current diplomats who are not American. And it was interesting that they had a pretty similar assessment of Trump and his presidency and his standing internationally. It's quite neatly illustrated by the situation with Iran, which is that Trump wants to seem aggressive and bold. He likes to take a bold stance, but there's often no clear strategy for achieving what is often even a vague goal. And so there's a sense of confusion, both about what Trump's explicit goal is and then how his strategy might evolve for meeting that goal. And the result is some violence that continues to bubble up occasionally dramatically in the Middle East, as we've seen both last year in September with the big attack on Abqaiq, which knocked out about half of Saudi Arabia's oil supply. And then, of course, this month with the killing of Qasem Soleimani, a top commander in Iran, and then the subsequent counterattack on an American base in Iraq. So, Charlotte, there's a certain lack of strategy that these people see in Donald Trump's foreign policy. But has he succeeded in making his administration or, or America kind of more feared abroad? You know, I feel like part of the Make America Great Again promise was make those who ought to be afraid of America afraid again. How's that part of the plan going? He definitely makes people anxious, if that's the measure. He's succeeded on that front. His administration is somewhat unpredictable, and so that is anxiety-provoking. But the other thing that's really remarkable over the course of his term is what seems to be a decline in multilateralism. And so we've seen that with repeated verbal attacks on NATO. Um, the United Nations, to a certain degree, has escaped the same type of vitriol coming from the Trump White House. But the feeling at the United Nations is never Nevertheless, quite precarious. The Secretary General of the UN, Antonio Guterres, doesn't say Donald Trump's name, in part because he doesn't seem to want to poke the beast. There was an instance recently where someone was trying to get him to sort of goad him into criticizing America, and he just really won't. He'll take up particular issues, talk about how climate change, for instance, is important, and support for international efforts and coordinated efforts on climate change is hugely important. But he's very careful about not criticizing Trump directly. And I think that's a pretty good encapsulation of the situation in that multilateral institutions in the Trump era feel quite vulnerable, and it's unclear how they might evolve both in the remainder of Trump's presidency and certainly if he were to be reelected. I think Charlotte raises a really interesting 
point about the personalization of politics under Donald Trump, about the way the secretary general doesn't want to use his name because he worries that Trump will get upset because of some sort of personal affront. And I think that's one of the most telling things he's done to American foreign policies, the extent to which he has personalized it. To him, foreign policy is about him having relationships with other great men around the world, and they work out these deals together because they are big and important and they can do it, and it's all about him. He has effectively sidelined the State Department. You know, the Middle East peace plan is being run entirely through Jared Kushner, who has no previous experience in government and diplomacy before this administration. He seems to see foreign policy the same way he sees being president as sort of a big dramatic stage on which to act out a personal drama. And that's really quite striking. And that, I think, is not a way to make America feared in the way that he wants America to be feared, meaning like as the tough guy on the block who you obey because you don't want to get hurt, but feared in the way that Charlotte brought it up which is producing anxiety out of uncertainty and a lack of confidence. Those are two very different things. Nevertheless, John, for all the changes that Donald Trump's made to American foreign policy, his defenders will often say, well, he offends some people, but he's got some of the big things right. And actually, his critics are always getting hysterical and saying that the world's going to fall in whenever he does something. And actually, it hasn't. What do you make of that line of defense? I don't know if it is that he has gotten things right And that's why there hasn't been a major crisis or that he's just been very lucky. I don't know how much that matters in the short term in any one decision. I think in the long term, you'd rather have someone with sort of a clear vision and understanding of the world. But there is a view that it's better to be lucky than good. And that sort of is what he has done throughout his career. He's taken these enormous gambles and they have tended to work out well. The month of January has been very interesting in illustrating Trump's luck. So when I was speaking with various actors who were involved in back-channel diplomacy after the killing of Qasem Soleimani, it was very clear that Iran wanted to stick to, in this instance, everyone was trying to stick to a script where people got to seem tough and there wasn't an all-out war. So Iran staged an attack in Iraq on an American base that luckily and intentionally killed no American soldiers. Donald Trump got to say Iran seems to be standing down. There was no further escalation. And people seem to follow the script quite well. The risk that people have raised to me who were involved in the hours between when Qasem Soleimani was killed and when Iran staged that strike is that the risk is that the script is not so neatly followed next time and that you can't expect everything to go just so perfectly when tensions are extremely high and you have a country such as Iran that it is a really desperate economic situation because of Trump's sanctions, which have been ratcheted up and continue to be ratcheted up without a commensurate increase in diplomacy that would give Iran a way out. And so the situation is extremely tense and there's a real possibility that something may happen that no one would like to occur, but nevertheless, things can spiral quite quickly. Thanks, Charlotte. We'll talk a little bit more about Donald Trump's Iran gamble in just a moment. This is Checks and Balance from Economist Radio, a new podcast covering the road to the 2020 elections in America. This week, we're asking how President Trump has reshaped the world. From poverty and obscurity, Jackson rose to glory, first as a military leader and then as the seventh president of the United States. People searching for a pattern in Donald Trump's foreign policy will often describe it as Jacksonian. When he moved into the Oval Office, he brought a portrait of Andrew Jackson with him. And by the way, he was one of our great presidents. You can see it in photographs of Donald Trump on the phone at his desk. Jackson's in soft focus behind him, resplendent in his red-trimmed coat and his hair swept back in an echo of the current president's signature hairdo. 
Trump traveled to Jackson's home, not far from Nashville, to mark his 250th birthday. It was during the revolution that Jackson first confronted and defied an arrogant elite. Does that sound familiar to you? I wonder why they keep talking about Trump and Jackson, Jackson and Trump. Oh, I know the feeling, Andrew. The term Jacksonian in foreign policy was coined by the academic Walter Russell Mead, and it essentially means a foreign policy which America's kind of like a rattlesnake. It'll mind its own business unless someone disturbs it, in which case they had better watch out. The Jacksonian tradition isn't pacifism. In fact, it glories in America's military strength, which is one reason why you'll meet a fair number of military veterans at any Trump rally. But it's different from the interventionist tradition, most recently pressed into service when George W. Bush made the case for the invasion of Iraq. In the trenches of World War I, through a two-front war in the 1940s, the difficult battles of Korea and Vietnam, and in missions of rescue and liberation on nearly every continent, Americans have amply displayed our willingness to sacrifice for liberty. Freedom is worth fighting for, dying for, and standing for. Jacksonians are isolationists until someone treads on them, at which point they will lash out. This sounds on the face of it pretty appealing if you're an American voter. America First, which is one of Donald Trump's 2016 themes, was lifted, probably unknowingly, from the America First movement, which is headed by Charles Lindbergh, a famous aviator, and had opposed American entry into the Second World War. There are still interests in this country and abroad who will do their utmost to draw us into war. Against these interests, we must be continuously on guard. Until the Vietnam War came along, that was the largest anti-war movement in America's history. It is only when we are asked to take part in the quarrels of foreign countries that we divide. It was also deeply anti-Semitic. If any of these groups, the British, the Jewish, or the administration, stops agitating for war, I believe there will be little danger of our involvement. The problem with Jacksonianism and foreign policy is that while Americans might reasonably want the world to leave them alone, it's seldom that simple. Rattlesnake isolationism is really appealing at the tail end of a long war, the original America First movement was partly a response to the First World War. Jimmy Carter's distaste for foreign entanglements came as a big relief after the Vietnam saga. But as Carter found, and as Donald Trump is finding now, disengaging with the world sounds great on the campaign trail. But unfortunately, foreigners don't always do what American presidents would like them to do. We continue to face a grave situation in Iran where our embassy has been seized and more than 60 American citizens continue to be held as hostages in an attempt to force unacceptable demands on our country. Let's bring in Shashank Joshi. Shashank's The Economist defense editor. Shashank, I want to begin by talking a bit about Iran. How well do you think Donald Trump's Jacksonian instincts in foreign policy have served him in dealing with Iran? Well, there is a Jacksonian element in the willingness to lash out and stamp his authority through military means. No attempt to sort of use values or, or high-minded ideas about crafting a new relationship with Iran. Just an assertion of raw military power that we saw so dramatically in the assassination of Qasem Soleimani, Iran 
Grant's top general. And that was an act, I think, that in a way expunged some of the ghosts of 2013 when Barack Obama refused to strike Bashar al-Assad for using chemical weapons in Syria, an act that many people around Trump felt diminished American power. On the other hand, Jacksonianism isn't just about lashing out. There's the other element which you discussed. It's about minding your own business, marshalling your strength, focusing on the real threats. And Donald Trump's own national defense strategy says the focus is Russia and China. It's great power competition. By going after Iran in this way, and more importantly, going after it as part of a crisis which began when he ripped up a multinational nuclear deal, which provoked Iran into lashing out, provoked Iran into the rocket attacks that culminated in this American assassination, I think we see something very un-Jacksonian, which is in fact a sort of willingness to get sucked into this region that he himself has repeatedly called sand and death. Yes, I was going to ask how the king of Qasim Soleimani fits with that broader aspiration you saw in his election campaign back in 2016 to get out of the Middle East, if you possibly could, preferably taking the oil with you. (laughs) Exactly. And I just find it remarkable that a man who campaigned on the promise to get America out of the Middle East and who in October 2019 was saying this is the biggest mistake presidents have ever made. This was a terrible error getting involved in the Middle East. We should get out. Has put in 14,000 new troops into the region since last May. 14,000. That's extraordinary. Jacksonianism, so in foreign policy, as you say, contains these contradictory impulses, and you see these in Donald Trump's Middle East policy. How does his treatment of allies fit in with the Middle East policy? I mean, the big thing there that we've written about had a cover story which you contributed to was the betrayal of the Kurds. What sort of impact, a lasting impact, do you think that's had in the region? I think it's had a profound impact. And for all of the idea that by killing Soleimani, he has shown American power and America's willingness to act and stamp its authority on the region, I think it's profoundly outweighed by the psychological damage that was done by his willingness to abandon his Kurdish allies, the ones who had been at the forefront of the fight against Islamic State, and to do so in a way that not only abandoned the foot soldiers of the anti-ISIS fight, but also essentially showed two fingers to Britain and France both allies that had troops inside Syria. So in other words, he's willing to escalate in ways that are dramatic and surprising, but he's also, in disengaging from a crucial part of the Middle East, from Syria, has done it in a way that I think has undermined trust in American predictability, in American alliances. And if you look at countries like Saudi Arabia, and indeed in other parts of the world, American allies, the message I think they take overall is not that Mr. Trump is willing to re-establish American power in a way that makes America a force to be reckoned with again after the sort of diffidence of the Obama years. It's that he can leave you and turn on a dime, leaving you carrying the can in ways that make you think very, very hard about whether you need a plan B or not. It makes me wonder whether it's possible, in fact, to be Jacksonian in foreign policy and be a superpower. I mean, if you think back to when Andrew Jackson was actually holding the presidency before the American Civil War, America is a medium-sized military economic power. At that point, this mixture of isolationism, but we'll kick back if you threaten us, makes some sense. You can't really have that view of power and be a superpower at the same time, can you? 
to the extent that a superpower means having global obligations, having allies around the world who you've committed to protect in exchange for some kind of fealty or loyalty. No, because you will be entangled by their various enterprises and projects. If Iran threatens Saudi Arabia, if China threatens Japan, you as a superpower are going to have to make a decision as to whether you mind your own business and watch as your allies get rattled or step in in ways that could drag you into conflicts that you would rather avoid. Charlotte, you're just back from a couple of reporting trips to the Middle East recently. Do Shashank's comments resonate with you? Yes, it's interesting. When I was with Saudi Aramco, which is the world's biggest oil company and Saudi Arabia's state-owned oil giant, in October, it was about a little less than a month after the attacks at Abqaiq, which was really the nerve center of Saudi Arabia's oil system. Those attacks knocked out more than half of the country's production. You see Saudi Aramco and Saudi Arabia taking real precautions. If you visit any of their facilities, they have their own private security forces, and then those are ringed by government protection. Their headquarters, it's basically a small city. It's like crossing a border. And within those are other buildings that are ringed by security as well. I was in the heart of one of these buildings, their command center, where all the different parts of their system are visible on screens that sort of wrap around the room so that they can see where any disruption is and then try to adapt their infrastructure very quickly. They want to seem like everything's proceeding as normal, right? But it's just not clear in the Trump era how America might respond with continued attacks on oil infrastructure as seems likely. There was no counterattack. In this new age of what Trump likes to call American energy dominance, America's willingness to intervene on behalf of oil interests in the Middle East is much less certain. He wants other NATO allies to play their role. He doesn't want America to be doing this job on its own. He does talk about keeping troops there to guard the oil, but that seems like a mercantile interest rather than a national interest thing, right? If you compare Trump's language with the language of someone like George W. Bush, who talked about freedom and democracy and talked about foreign policy in the Middle East in very ideological and principled terms, that is very clearly not how Trump would frame America's interests in the Middle East. But I do think even with keeping troops there, he seems less concerned than he might have if America hadn't undergone the shale boom. He's more willing to pick a fight with Iran. And all of this means that his allies in the Middle East, the Emiratis, the Saudis, they're bracing themselves for continued violence. All this obviously matters a huge amount for the rest of the world and for America's national interest too. But how much does it matter to voters? I mean, the cliche is that foreign policy doesn't normally matter a whole load in American presidential elections. Do you think that's right? Yeah, I think that's broadly right. I don't think there's a critical mass of voters who who really think seriously about America's role in the world, which is a shame. To the extent that foreign policy affects elections, it affects it through some direct connection to voters. I'm thinking of the 2004 election between George W. Bush and John Kerry really sort of hinged on foreign policy. And I think people felt more protected with George W. Bush than with Kerry. And in 2016, Donald Trump really tapped into America's fatigue with the long wars and with good reason. You know, an 18-year-old today will have lived her entire life while her country was at war. And people are tired of that. I think Shawshank is absolutely right that it's hard to be a Jacksonian superpower. But if America is going to pull back from the world, I think it's to the world's benefit and to America's benefit that it does so in a way that's not quite so haphazard and, and emotive. I want to take issue with that just a little bit in terms of how much voters care about foreign policy, because I do think, as you say, are people that concerned about the future of NATO? Probably not. But traditionally in the sort of wag the dog model of politics, presidents might try to show off how tough they are on the international stage in order to win votes or distract from some domestic issue. And clearly you do see Trump make news when he has 
trouble brewing at home. Nevertheless, I do think there are some moderate voters who, frankly, might like Trump's economic record, might like his tax reform, generally think that on a pragmatic level, their fortunes have improved over the course of his presidency, in large part because of the stock market's continued outstanding performance. But there are these instances on the foreign policy stage where it can look quite scary that Trump might stumble into North Korea doing something that is deeply alarming or might stumble into an all-out war with Iran. And there's this fear of his unpredictability as a commander-in-chief that I think for some moderates might be sufficiently troubling enough that they would then turn to someone else. Okay, let's park the Middle East for the moment. I know we're going to come back and talk about some of the issues we touched on here a few times between now and November. We'll be back in a moment to talk about China and also about what another four years of Donald Trump would mean, both for America and also for the world. Spin your passion into a business with Shopify and break sales records with the world's best converting checkout. Let's hear that one more time. The world's best converting checkout. Shopify's legendary checkout makes it easier for customers to shop on your website, across social media, and everywhere in between. Now that's music to your ears. Any way you spin it, you can be a smash hit with Shopify. Start your dollar a month trial today at shopify.com slash records. This is Checks and Balance from Economist Radio. Each week, we'll take a big theme shaping US politics and explore it in detail. In this episode, we're looking at how President Trump has reshaped the world. I'm also writing a Checks and Balance newsletter. You can subscribe to that at economist.com slash checks and balance. Charlotte and John, you're signed up already, I hope. I'm kind of waiting to see how it goes. My inbox is already pretty full. (laughs) Sorry. Thank you for that vote of confidence. (laughs) I have. It's very good. One man who certainly will have signed up to it because he's on top of everything is the Economist Bureau Chief in Beijing, David Rennie. Thank you for staying up so late. You were based in Washington before you moved to China. And the US-China relationship is absolutely critical to Donald Trump's plan to recalibrate American power. What difference has he made? So we're nearly at the end of the first four years of the Trump administration. And he gets credit for calling a halt to some policies that were not working. It is fair to say that China had learned the art of every time there was a really huge problem in relations, they would make a bunch of nice-sounding promises, they would install yet another formal dialogue, and you'd have meetings, and these meetings would become the kind of the whole point of the dialogue, and they would just kind of play America for time. President Trump is just very uninterested in those kind of dialogues. And so China struggled to play America in those ways. The problem is that it's too soon to know whether Donald Trump actually has anything coherent to kind of back up that impatience and that disinterest in cooperation. David, Trump just signed a new trade deal with China. How is it being received? Well, the official version here in China is that it's a win for both sides and that the trade war is now on a truce. I think what it really does, though, for the Chinese is it confirms that there's a real gap between the agenda, the very aggressive agenda of the foreign policy machine and Donald Trump himself as an individual. The machine wants China to really change the way that it organises its entire economy and to stop this model of authoritarian state capitalism with huge amounts of state aid and subsidies and protectionist policies and barriers to market access. China doesn't want to do that. China thinks that its current model works well for it. 
They think that Donald Trump, for all of his kind of talk of getting really tough, actually wants something easier for China to swallow, which is for China just to kind of buy more American stuff, particularly stuff from the farm states that the Chinese have worked out are important to Donald Trump's re-election. And I think that the Chinese are not wholly wrong, that actually in some ways, when you hear Donald Trump talking about trade relations with the rest of the world, he sometimes sounds like a kind of real estate guy for whom the American economy is a uniquely valuable piece of real estate and foreigners should pay rent to access it. And China is, I think, probably happier to pay a bit more in terms of buying soybeans and whatever than to really meet the demands to really change its ways on things like market access and state capitalism and industrial policy. Is it likely that China will meet those export targets that are set out under the New Skinny deal? Well, there's an economist's answer to that, and there's a political answer to that. So the economists already kind of looking at some of the numbers and saying, well, boy, it's going to be hard to meet some of those. They're already near the limits of what they can buy. But I think ultimately, if you're trying to work out whether China is going to keep its word or break its word, that's a political judgment. And if you really want to go down the kind of rabbit hole, I think you have to try and guess whether the Chinese communist leadership wants Donald Trump to be re-elected for a second term, because I think they've understood very clearly how linked this is to his own hopes of re-election. That kind of political judgment, probably between now and November, is the one to keep an eye on. Do you think that China wants Donald Trump re-elected? I think that there are certainly, I have heard, some well-connected Chinese figures, close particularly to the kind of security and intelligence side of the Chinese state, who do want Donald Trump re-elected. Now, they admit that Donald Trump is very difficult to deal with. They admit that in their system, where the prestige of their supreme leader, Xi Jinping, is everything, it's difficult to have him negotiating with a guy like Donald Trump, who might change his mind and leave him dangling with a tweet. But basically, China's sort of more cynical analysis is that Donald Trump is breaking the West, that he is challenging America's alliances in Asia. He's demanding more money to have American troops in Japan and South Korea. He's offending the European Union. He's threatening to slap tariffs on European cars. And so as long as Donald Trump is playing wrecking ball with the entire kind of US-led post-Second World War order, China will probably prefer that to the unknown of a democratic candidate. Although, you know, they have different views of different democratic candidates. That's too good not to pick up on. What do they think of Joe Biden, Bernie Sanders? Who do they like? I should be honest to admit that when we're talking about China and saying they, you know, it's a generalization about a very complex and secretive place. I have heard the Chinese say that they quite like Joe Biden because they think he would take them back to the kind of slightly more comfortable days of the Obama, Bush, Clinton era. They're very unkeen on Elizabeth Warren and Bernie Sanders, who they think would probably push things like labor rights and environmental rights, and that that might be cover for a protectionist push against Chinese imports. Generally, the Chinese Communist Party likes Republicans more than Democrats because their view is that Republicans are all about money, whereas Democrats occasionally get irritating and talk about human rights. John Fasman, Beijing for Biden is not the bumper sticker that the Democratic frontrunner is going to want to have on people's cars come November. What do you think about American voters? I mean, do you think that Donald Trump's Republican voters will see the president as having kind of delivered his promises on China just by virtue of having been confrontational? They won't really worry too much about the details. Or do you think that actually the details of the China policy matter more than that? I am going to have a better answer to this question next week after I am in Iowa. But one thing that struck me is the extent to which rural Midwestern farmers seem to have stuck by President Trump despite the pain that they're causing. And that, to me, speaks to how well he has managed to 
wage sort of basis popularity on cultural appeals rather than economic interests. I think that this group of farmers feels heard by Donald Trump. They like Donald Trump. They like the way he talks. And I think they think the short-term pain that they're going through is worth it for a long-term better deal from China. Now, whether such a deal is actually on the horizon or possible or desirable or what the details would look like don't really matter. But I think there are a lot of people who feel better off under Trump, despite the fact that from a strictly economic perspective, we think they should be feeling worse off. So for rural Midwestern voters, they seem pretty solidly behind Donald Trump's China policy. Charlotte, there's another part of the Republican constituency, which is a sort of upscale business part of the Republican coalition, which you spend some time reporting on. What did those folks make of the president's China policy? It really depends on the type of business that you're speaking about. So, for instance, a year and a half ago, the CEO of Harley-Davidson was very worried about Chinese tariffs. The phenomenal performance of the stock market will go a long way towards forgiving any complaints with the president's economic policy or foreign policy. But it's sort of interesting. You do see business leaders settling into a state of uneasy relationship with Trump, where they like his tax reform, they like his emphasis on deregulation. And the situation with China has not been disastrous. The skinny deal, it's unclear exactly what it will really achieve. And conveniently, hard numbers on exports won't be available until March 2021. So we won't really have a good idea of whether China has, in fact, bought all these additional American goods as promised by that skinny deal. But executives remain, even though there are elements of Trump's policies that have been decently favorable to them, There are other parts of his agenda that are much less attractive and indeed caused President Trump's business councils disband and so forth over his remarks on Charlottesville. Business leaders split with him on the Paris Climate Accord, on immigration. So the benefits of the Trump presidency and certainly the phenomenal performance of the stock market has made them settle into this weird, we don't quite like, we don't quite feel comfortable with this administration, but everything is more or less going fine. So we'll make nice and sort of bide our time until November. David, why don't you have the last word and then we'll let you go to bed. I mean, I think sitting in Beijing, watching American business interests roll through and talking to American officials, isn't it yet another example of the way that the Republican Party has had to kind of abandon a surprising number of shibboleths? I mean, not that long ago, Republicans cared passionately about free trade and globalization and were very hostile to industrial policy and very hostile to managed trade. If you look at the deal that Donald Trump has just signed with the Chinese, it's basically an old-fashioned 1970s managed trade deal. Once again, the Republicans, if they are cheering this deal and Donald Trump's kind of generic toughness, they're cheering industrial policies and state intervention in ways that would have been unthinkable only four years ago. David, thank you. I'm sure we'll talk to you again soon. Thank you. This is Checks and Balance from Economist Radio. So let's try to sum up where we've got to. Charlotte, how much has Donald Trump changed the world through his use of American power? And is it possible that things would go back to how they were before if he loses the election in November? Or has that moment gone for good? I was looking at some polls recently at thinking about this question. John referred earlier in the show to foreign countries' lack of confidence in Trump. Interestingly, that same poll also showed that their view of America more broadly remained favorable. Even though almost two-thirds lacked confidence in Trump, more than half still viewed America favorably. If 
Trump gets reelected, there's a risk that the rest of the world doesn't see this as sort of a weird occurrence, but rather part of a longer theme that will be carried through Trump's second term and potentially beyond. Multilateral institutions have taken, as we've chatted about, quite a beating in Trump presidency. I think it's really unclear what might happen in a second term. And that decline in multilateralism coincides with real crunch time for dealing with climate change. It's a very inconvenient time for a decline in multilateralism when you have a problem that requires countries to really cooperate on a scale that they never have before in history. And Trump's first term has been notable for the complete abdication of responsibility in dealing with rising temperatures. Certainly that problem will grow much worse in a second Trump term. If you ask what it means to go back to normal and you assume the sort of broad status quo anti pre-Trump, if you get a Joe Biden, say, who's a sort of known D.C. figure, I think that's certainly possible to an extent. But I suspect that the world has started making contingency plans that they understand that even if this is a one off, nationalism remains a powerful force in the world and will probably be so in American politics for a while. The fatigue with long wars, which has been expressed as fatigue with America's global presence, is also real. I think that you have a you have a world that understands that America is not the bedrock that it was. The question that I have is to what extent is what we're seeing now somewhat inevitable in the sense that the sort of American presence in the world was still structured around the Cold War in a lot of ways, even if it was shifting toward a structure that was based more around the global war on terror and people are getting tired of that. To what extent would America have had to have negotiated a different relationship with the world anyway? Yeah, I think there's a definitely an argument to be made there that Donald Trump's foreign policy and the way that he's sort of shaken up America's relations with its allies, and that's a bit of a euphemism, but let's let that go for the moment, is more of a symptom of that searching for a different kind of role after the Cold War ended. You know, he's more of a symptom than than a cause. That's certainly an argument to be made. I suppose, I think one place I'd push back, though, is if you're an American ally, it's not like there are a whole load of other more friendly superpowers who you can have cozy relations with. So that's been reinforced to me in conversations that I've had with top non-American diplomats in recent weeks. I had someone say to me, yes, this is a nightmare, but what other choice does Europe have? I think that the question for the next decade will be about China's influence not just in Europe, where it is continuing to take work very hard on its positioning within Europe, but really in Africa and across Asia. You see this, of course, with the Belt and Road Initiative, which is its huge investment series of infrastructure investments stretching west from China. It's investing heavily in African infrastructure as well. It's helping to build up energy systems across Asia, both through supporting coal plants, but also in big investments in grids. It is the dominant manufacturer of solar PVs, batteries. It's investing in mines that are essential to the energy transition around the world. You see China's influence abroad being expanded in a whole variety of ways. And so I think you'll see different parts of the world increasingly turning to Chinese support in the coming decade. Thanks, Charlotte. Thank you, John. We haven't talked much about impeachment. Obviously, Donald Trump's Senate trial goes on at the moment. It'll be going on next week when John Fasman, you and I will both be in, in Iowa. How cold is it going to be? Do I need to pack my snow boots? It's going to be pretty cold. I woke up and checked the weather in Cedar Rapids this morning. It was 25. Well, I'm looking forward to that. I'll see you there. For more coverage of the US elections and everything else going on in the world, subscribe to The Economist print and digital editions at economist.com slash radio offer. 
I think the US pages, which I'm responsible for, are particularly fine. There's an excellent Lexington column on Bernie Sanders this week. Here on Checks and Balance, we'll be delving into all the big themes shaping the election on future episodes. And please don't forget to subscribe to this podcast and give us a rating if you've enjoyed this episode. That's all from us. We'll have more Checks and Balance next week. Oh, yeah. Where do I do the quiz? Before you go, John Charlotte, I've got a quick quiz for you. I was going to ask something about the first presidential election The Economist ever covered, but John Fasman got wind of that plan and cheated. Um, John, just so people know, <laughs> what year was that first election and who won? 1844 and James K. Polk won. Correct. Can I just clarify, the cheating occurred because I was in London last week and snaffled through our archives. Very sneaky. So instead of James K. Polk in 1844, I'm going to ask about the second election The Economist covered in 1848. Your starter question is, who was the winner of that presidential election? Either of you can jump in. Rutherford B. Hayes? That's a very good guess. That's my standard obscure president guess. That guy. It's good. That's a great guess. He's obscure enough that it sounds erudite, but it was in fact Zachary Taylor of the Whig Party. My bonus fact for you was that 1848 was the first presidential election that took place on the same day in every state. The Economist covered the 1848 election results in its cover story. It said it was delightful that thanks to the wonderful invention of the magnetic telegraph, the results of the election were transmitted to every part of the union in little more than one day, leaving no opportunity for promoting mischief by sinister reports. Thanks, John and Charlotte. John, I look forward to seeing you next week in Iowa. Charlotte, we'll speak soon. Great. I will see you on the snowy plains. I remember those 6 a.m. flights to Iowa. I cover the Midwest based out of Chicago for four years and spent most of my time digging my car out of snowbanks in western Iowa along the border. Good luck with that. That's all from us. We'll have more checks and balance next week. Checks and balance.